Boy, it's good to see you. Oh, it is so good to see you. Almost everyone in Christian leadership has been asking the question, how has COVID-19 changed how people see the church, how they believe? And so, uh, groups like the Barna Institute and LifeWay Research has been working since about February to... Uh, to survey and study the population to see if there has been any change. In April, these studies began to be published. And here's what they found. Roughly half, 51% of the population of adults in the U.S. believe in a traditional biblical-based God who is all-powerful, all-knowing creator. That's a dramatic decrease. In fact, it's um, a decrease that has continued since 1991 when it was 73%. The same is true of what people believe about Jesus. In fact, it's even more dramatic. Of those who believe in Jesus, more say he sinned than not, 44 to 41 and 52% of the population believe that Jesus was just a great teacher and not the divine son of God. And here's what's really crazy. Those who believe in Satan has increased to more than 56%. Now, if you've been following me, more people believe in Satan than God. And it gets weirder. That same 56% of the population believe that hell is a real place. Um, that kind of surprised me, you know. So much negative stuff about hell, <laughs> yet 56% of the population believes. But only 2% believe that they're going to hell. Now, wait a minute. More people believe in Satan... Fewer people believe in Jesus as the Son of God and the divine Savior. Um, more people believe that they can work their way into heaven by being moral and ethical and a good person, which we know how difficult that is. And yet, almost nobody believes they're going there. Hmm. Only 30% of people in our population believe and Jesus is their Savior. And only 10% admit that God has a place in their life in the daily decisions that they make. This didn't make sense to me. And I may just be naive and, 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 and just don't get around enough. Maybe, maybe this is not shocking to you. I see a few of you nodding like, yeah, I knew that. I didn't know that. Here's the problem, in, in my opinion. Only 48% of the population believe in the authority and truth of the Bible. And only 30% of the population, and this also <laughs> is, are numbers that have, are people inside the church, only 30% have even read their Bible to some extent. And 
9 to 14% of our population read the Bible once a week. And the, and the biggest deterrent, say those who don't, it's like almost 70%. They say they've tried, but it's too challenging for them to do it on their own. Duh, where are we, church? We have a problem. And to me, it seems as if the greatest misunderstanding of those outside the Christian faith concerns hell and salvation. Most non-Christians cite that they... that what they understand about God is the... about hell is the reason why they don't believe in God. They ask questions like, how can... A loving God created a place of eternal punishment. How can we speak of a God as love when the same God sent us to hell? Do, do you expect me to believe in this God of the Bible when God's judgment is so harsh? And the problem with that is most of their information about hell they get from movies and literature. They don't know. And, and maybe you don't either. So this morning, we're going to look at what the Bible really says about hell and the God of love, grace, and mercy and what God has done, is doing, and will do about it in the future. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength, our redeemer. May these words be your words. And for every word that I don't speak, O oh God, that you would have me speak, or every word that I misspeak, O oh God, may you fill in the gaps. Hide me behind the cross this day, O oh God, for we pray this in Jesus' name and search for you. Amen. You know, for years I've, I've really thought that if you would give me a divine eraser, that <laughs> in 10 minutes I could take hell out of the Bible. But you know, taking hell out of the Bible is not possible because it is a reality. And moderns want to reject the teachings of hell as something that's um, mythological, something that's ancient, something not to be taken seriously. Further, theologians and pastors have struggled, misused, and manipulated, as well as ignoring the teachings of hell, especially in the New Testament. Now, some people try to avoid it. They say things like, well, that was the Old Testament God back when he was in his junior high years. You know, he was cranky. But when God matured in the New Testament with Jesus, the meek and mild Jesus, God was all about love and compassion. The problem with this is that when you read the Gospels, Jesus speaks of hell more than anybody else in the Bible. If you want to avoid the idea of hell, we can't ignore the problem by just focusing on the meek and mild Jesus. For Jesus is not meek and mild. He is our Savior. And we cannot dismiss the, our understandings of hell because at the core of what we understand it is, is we begin to understand who God is. We begin to understand ourselves. 
And we begin to understand truly the salvation of Jesus and what is being offered to us. So let's look at what the Bible, particularly the New Testament, says about hell. Depending on what translation you're reading, the word hell is used 13 to 25 times. And when you add the images of fire that we automatically uh, associate with hell, that number goes over 30. Okay? Now, the King James Version, the problem with this, the King James Version is the one that includes the most because the King James Version um, translates all the, the three words that are translated hell by the King James Version, and they really have different connotations. They all refer to hell, but they give us a different picture of it. Gehenna, Hades, and Tartarus. So let's take a look at those. Just an overview. Gehenna. Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament, primarily in Matthew by Jesus. And Gehenna comes from the Hebrew word Hinnon. And if you have any background, you know that that. Hinnon refers to a valley that's south and west of Jerusalem. And what, what happened in the valley of Hinnon is during a time when the Jewish kings were falling away from God, that valley was used as a place for human sacrifice to the god Moloch. When the people came back to God, it was condemned as an unclean place. No one was to go there. By the time of Jesus, uh, the, the Valley of Hinnon was used as a place of, of destroying waste and sewerage, um, um, uh, the dead bodies of, of animals, and they would burn them. And by the time of Jesus, those fires burned 24-7. The stench when the wind <laughs> blew from that direction in Jerusalem was overwhelming. So when Jesus refers to Gehenna, he's referring to this fiery garbage dump where the evil things of humanity are being burned up and destroyed. It's known as a place of fire, stench, and evil. Gehenna is used to describe the hideous punishment of hell. It's an awful place where no one wants to go. And it clearly is the place or state where the wicked are punished. On several occasions, Jesus warns his disciples of committing anything that would lead to Gehenna. Hades. Hades is used 12 times in the New Testament, most often in Revelation. The Greek word Hades literally means the unseen place, the departed, those not received, those who are, are excluded. In Greek mythologies, Hades is a god of the underworld. And in Luke, what Luke says is that Jesus describes Hades as a place of eternal punishment, as the judgment for sin and the rejection of God. Tartaros is used only once in 2 Peter 2.4, where Peter refers to Tataros, a pit, the pit of judgment that is reserved for fallen angels. Now, each of these gives a perspective on hell. 
Gehenna gives us an image of a place where the garbage waste of life is burned. Hades is an image of a place where the, those who have rejected God are punished. And Tataros gives us an image of a deep pit of isolation and judgment. Together, these paint an awful picture of hell. A place we want to avoid. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to make clear to his disciples. As John sees the picture of, of God's cleansing and bringing new, cleansing the old creation, bringing a new creation, this is the image that John sees. But the question that I want to move to is the question, does or do these images of hell compromise our understanding of God as loving? Why would God create such a place? Absolutely not. In fact, hell, hear me, and I'm going to back it up scripturally, hell was not intended for humanity. And Jesus also makes it clear that hell has no power. In Revelation 27, verse 7 through 10, uh, it implies that hell was created for the devil, the false prophet, and fallen angels. A place where the spiritual forces that oppose God's purpose will be consumed and to purify creation. And then Matthew quotes Jesus in 2541. Listen to this. He says, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared, made for a specific purpose, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not made for us. When humanity rejected God and rebelled against God, we, not God, opened the gates of hell. We opened the gates of hell to, to those for whom it was not intended. We were made in the image of God, not in the image of evil. So I, I, you, you may be asking, when I got to this point in the sermon, I was asking, so can't God just remove free will? And then close the gates of hell? Well, the problem with that is that if God removes free will, God, yes, removes our, our decision to rebel against God, but it also removes our ability to choose love, to choose to live in the image of God, to choose to live as a child of God, to choose as God has made us. And so God takes a different approach. Since that day of rebellion, the God of love, mercy, and forgiveness has been working to close the gates of hell. And for this reason, Jesus came to all of humanity to show us the power of God's love and the mercy that he offers us through the suffering and death of his son. There is no other God of any other religion that sacrifices for humanity but our God. There is no other religion that talks about a God that loves us so much that is willing to die for us. How can we say anything else but this is a God of love? And this is a God that I want to know with my head and with my heart 
And hell has no power. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, 18, he said, as as he was talking about the church and, and the way of God in this world, that the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. God's never stopped loving us. And here's the deal. While hell was not created or intended for us, heaven was created, is created, and intended for us. So what is God's plan to close the gates of hell? That was the passage that Cindy read for you. To me, there are several places that we could go in the New Testament to look at God's plan. But for for me, this passage in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians clearly states what we are asked to do as followers and what God is willing to do for us. He starts with these words, now concerning the times and the seasons. And, and, And what we have there is that Paul uses the Greek word kairos, translated seasons, But literally it means in God's perfect timing or at just the right time. In other words, God's plan is perfect. We may not know why or how (laughs) with our human understanding, but we can have faith that God has already put in place the closing of those gates. He continues in verse 8 with what we should do. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, hope. We're to do three things. To be sober. Sober is nepho. It's a clear judgment free from sin. To put on the breastplate of faith and love. Pistos, faith, is the divine confidence Not our confidence, God's confidence that's given to us. And agape, love. Not the love that we as human beings can can express, but God's divine love that's given to us as a gift. That's why he says, take it on. I give it to you. And the helmet of hope. Elpig. The expectation of what is sure. And what is sure? God's salvation. Through Jesus Christ. So, what does all this mean? Well, here's what God has promised. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. He has destined us. Ethitos. Already fixed or made already fixed or made, not for wrath, orge, God's opposition to sin. Not God's anger, but God's opposition to sin. That's what we're made for, and that's what God is doing for us. And, and further, but for obtaining periposis, for abundant gain through salvation in Jesus Christ, So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live. And the strongest word for live is used there, zeo or zoe. God's gift of life. One that we cannot obtain on our own. 
all of this so that we might live. Now, looking back on this passage, I skipped over the part about staying awake. <laughs> and as I, uh, as I was working on the sermon, I, and particularly those statistics, I realized I've been asleep. I don't know about you, but I've been asleep. And, and this was like a wake-up call for me. That, that our, our culture, our, the people that are around us, and some even within the church, need to hear again about the salvation of Jesus. About the assurity of what God is doing for us. And how much God is willing to do for us to show us how much he loves us. I've been asleep. And we need to wake up. Two years ago, I was... Uh, I occasionally help my son, particularly when his wife's on a business trip. But two years ago, uh, I, was, I was helping him, and my granddaughter, Macy, uh, had a swim lesson. And it was her first one, so I, I was taking her swim lesson. And, of course, uh, she wanted to be independent. And when we walked in, um, well-organized, well-staffed, but crowded. I mean, kids were running everywhere. And I'm going... None of these kids, this is the first time lesson, none of these kids know how to swim. I, I didn't sit down. And, and I was following Macy around. She's going, Papa, I am okay. And so what I did was I acted like I was taking pictures for her mom. <laughs> you know. And I, I stood as close as I could to the pool because I just thought any minute one of these kids waiting on a lesson is going to go into the pool. Well, Macy did fine. She had fun. She told me how, much, how great it was. She went to uh, uh, put on her cover. Uh, they had a special place for that. And I was watching very carefully. And, she come, and just as she got to my side, a kid gets away from a parent and goes into the deep end. And I want to tell you, I was about this far from the edge. And I took two steps. And I was about to go in. And <laughs> as I was about to go in, four other parents went into the water. Thank goodness for that. I had my shoes and my clothes, my cell phone, my watch. But you know, I, I didn't care about that. Macy tugged on my sleeve, and I was afraid, you know, about what she might, because this kid came up choking and, and coughing and crying. And she said, Papa, that little boy needs to learn how to swim. I said to her, I said, can I carry you to the car? Oh, Papa. Yeah, let me carry you to the car. I love you. Well, I guess so. And I held her as close as I could. And thought about how much I loved her. You know, lots of people are running around the pool these days. And they don't know how to swim. And um, God's waking me up. Because fewer are learning with heart and mind what it means to swim with hope, the expectation of what is sure, what it means to swim with faith, divine confidence, what it means to swim with love, God's sacrificial love that transforms not only our lives but our relationships and everything about us.
Our loving God has a plan for every person on this planet. And he has called the church to wake up. I truly believe that. Now, as I say that, I also want to say to those of you online and anybody in this room, if you have questions about this in your own faith and where you are with Jesus Christ, let, let me know, let Cindy know, let us, let, us, let us help you. You don't have to navigate this on your own. There's something missing in your life. There is, there, this is the opportunity for us to be the church for which the gates of hell has no power. Wake up, church. It's time to jump. And we are called to touch the hearts and minds. And, uh, and who cares if it ruins our clothes, our shoes, our watch, and our cell phone? When you love something, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's the way God feels, and so should we. Thanks be to God.